What did we do? Cover all of one or two verses last week? One. I think we got down to three, I think. The big decision today was whether to continue to go at that pace or to pick it up a little bit. I think we're going to pick it up a little bit. Um, although there's lots to say about every one of these verses going through. But, uh, but it's really pretty, it's, it's, it's a straightforward uh, passage and I really have no place in mind that we're going to stop. So keep an eye on the time and when it's time, we'll just pull the plug wherever we're at going down through. Uh, but uh, last week we looked at really the first two verses of chapter 11. Um, and so maybe just a, a quick review and then we'll, uh, we'll push into verse three. Um, what was our takeaway from last week, just looking at verse 1? Really famous verse. It's well-known, maybe one of the most well-known in the Bible. Um, any, uh, any thoughts, any takeaways on it? Anything that you remember that we emphasized last week about this verse? Um, I came away with hope is a believing confidence in what God guarantees, which is his word. Hope is the believing confidence in what God guarantees good. And that is his word. That's right. Um, we, used, uh, we used words like title deed um, with the idea of assurance, uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen. It has to do with... Um, with, with the guarantee, the foundation, the title deed. Uh, there's, uh, there's conviction, there's proof, there's certainty of things not seen. And uh, hopefully you appreciate the, the struggle with that concept because we live in a very naturalistic, materialistic world. And, um, and it, it would not be hard to find people who only believe in that which they can empirically experience, right? Feel, handle, taste, touch. Um, it's all about senses. We have, I believe in what I see. Like Thomas, right? I will not believe unless I see him, unless I put my fingers. And so that's that's the world that we that's the world that we live in. That is certainly not the idea of faith uh, in this in this passage. Here the writer really wants us um, to understand that we live our lives firmly believing in things that we cannot see, which is pretty cool. I mean, that is, that is faith. And, um, and so in order to help us to do that, he's going to give us these examples, right? Going back all the way through Old Testament redemptive history. And he's just going to kind of parade, um, these examples uh, of people who are really radical risk takers. Um, they were they were willing to take these risks for the glory of God, based purely upon um, the word that God gave them that they believed by faith. Right. So, so that's really what's going on in the first verse. We we suggested that this is really a parallelism, right? The first, uh, the first line and the second line are really very much parallel ideas. And so um, 
So, so faith is the basis on which we live our life so that when God calls us to do something uh, really unimaginable, like accepting the confiscation of our property with joy, right? Going back to chapter 10, what these believers were willing to do. Or build an ark, right? What? Uh, these are uh, unimaginable Things go to a land that you've never seen. Have a child when you're a hundred years old. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, abandon the treasures of Egypt, choosing rather the sufferings of Christ. Right, those kinds of things. These are uh, these are some of the things that are brought out for us in this chapter. Be these radical risk takers. Do it by faith, not by what you see. Um. And, and we can do that. We can do that only because by faith we believe God's promises are true. And that really is what's going on in this chapter. So by faith we understand. By faith we know. By faith we know. Um, it does seem like in our apologetics we often give up our position of faith to give arguments from reason, right? You if you've, um, if you've shared the gospel with very many people or you've heard the gospel being shared with people, you may have an idea of what I'm talking about right there. We, we talk to them about things that they must believe, but we can almost, we can almost betray our, our apologetic when we start going down the road of reason, right? We're going to give them a bunch of evidences that... Are, are reasonable. But, and, and in doing that, the evidential apologetic, you know, the idea is that if I just present the unsaved person with enough evidences for the reliability of Scripture, they'll just believe the Bible. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Uh, why doesn't it work that way? Well, the natural man receives yeah. things <clears throat> Right. Um, I do think there's a place for reason. There's a place for logic, right? Faith is not illogical. Faith is not unreasonable. But reason and logic are always subject. They're not the, they're not the controlling authority. They're, they're subject to the authority of the Word of God. So uh, Aslam said, we believe so that we might know. Jesus said, if you believe, then you will know. Right. So, um, you see the difference. We we are called to believe. If you believe, then you would know, and that's an important that's an important relationship between knowing and and believing. So the point is, and I think what Jesus is saying in that statement is that faith is really the starting point by which we know. All right, um, and then we uh, we talk we talk some about uh, everyone having everyone having a foundational authority for whatever they believe. Right, you talk to people about what they believe, and they'll tell you all about it. Um, and no matter what they're going to say to you in reference to what they believe, they always have a foundational starting point. They also they all, they they always have a foundational authority about, upon which they base their particular beliefs. 
many times, in fact, the majority of the time, what is the foundational starting point for a person's beliefs? Feelings. I think. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Feelings. But but mainly it's the mainly it's the I think. Do you find that to be true when you're talking to people? Yeah. Um, well, I think. I'm always just stunned. They don't hear what they're saying. The new thing is, is your truth. What's your truth? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's fine for you, but I think. Um, and, and evidently, they're very comfortable using themselves as their, as, the, as their own authority for whatever they, they believe. Um, I believe because it's how I feel. Uh, I believe because, well, it's what I think. It's my opinion. Well, my opinion. I have an opinion and I have... And, and so the problem is, of course, that we are fallen people. And, uh, and in our fallenness, we can never come to facts uh, naturally. The truth. We don't come to truth naturally. Um, no one comes naturally. Because as you said, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And so let's, uh, let's, let's start really what we want to do tonight in, in uh, um, Colossians chapter 2. All right? I, don't, I can't remember if we looked at this last week, but Colossians 2, 1. As, you re- as we read this, just keep in mind that God's word is telling us that it is the means by which we believe what we believe so that, so, that, so that when we say that we believe something, we are not our own authorities on that. We're actually appealing. We're not appealing to our own reason. We're appealing um, to a higher authority, to a, high, to a much higher authority. All right, so let's take a look. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. Who's the reader tonight? Who wants to do it? Brock, do you have it? Do you have enough light there? Sure. Go. How much do you want me to read? Three verses. All right. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You, uh, you, you see the emphasis on the, on the assurance of understanding. It's a phenomenal statement. Resulting in a what? An acknowledgement. True knowledge. A true knowledge of God's mystery. So assurance of understanding, a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a... It's an... Believable statement. The scripture presents us in this passage and many other passages 
with the reality that God's revelation to us is the basis of all wisdom and understanding. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the point the point that we're making is that, and, and I uh, and I really just can't. Emphasize, this might be the biggest point of the night that this is something you should take away and really believe this. Build your life on the reality that Scripture presents to us. The reality that God's revelation to us is the basis for all wisdom and understanding. And that's what we that's what we believe. And we believe that by faith. And there's a sense in which you really cannot understand anything in this world unless you have the starting point that scripture itself is the is the foundation for all knowledge and understanding. Now, when you look at verse 3, which is really where we're starting tonight, um, what do we understand by faith? What does, what does the writer say we understand by faith? Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What's this verse pressing into? What's the point? Yeah, we believe that. We believe that by faith. Um, Even though we didn't see it. Yeah. No, none of the evolutionists were as well. Um, yeah. So, um, what the what the verse is speaking of, of course, is the uh, is the truth of creation. Um, go over to Psalm thirty three, verse five. It's an important passage for this. Psalm 33, 5. 5 and 6. Another reader? Amber, do you have it? Yeah. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Oh, and uh, yeah, go down through verse eight, uh, 9. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. All right. So that, that's not hard to understand. It's a mind-blowing passage. But the truth of it is, is pretty clear. God spoke, it stood fast, and creation order testifies to God. His power, his omniscience, and uh, we might we might say to our evolutionary friend, our evolutionist friend, how can you start with random chaos and think order is going to come out of chaos? Um, and uh, so, so creation, creation. Um, that's verse 3. That's really what verse 3 is, is dealing with. We could get into Charles Darwin. We could get into Darwin's black box. We could get into um, irreducible complexity. We could get into uh, the proof of God's creation in reference to um, the smallest things in a human body, the cells, the eye. Incredible. 
the power and the wisdom of God's creation. Um, and so you have, uh, you have uh, creation testifying of God as the creator. That's really what verse 3 is dealing with. And if you want to talk about God as being the creator, you can get even more specific. What do we, what do we learn about creation from John chapter 1? Uh, the Lord Jesus is the word by which it was all created. By, by, yeah. You want to know where you first make contact with Jesus in the Bible? And God said, let there be light. It's in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Right? Um, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things created through him and for him. You kind of feel bad, don't you, when you see people who spend their whole life studying God's world and because they're so blind, they cannot see his fingerprints um, anywhere. They don't recognize. They don't recognize God as the creator. And um, and I suppose that's where we would be if it weren't for God's grace opening our eyes to see the truth of that. Someone made it. And the Bible tells us that the creator was the Lord Jesus. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What is that what is that emphasizing? What is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Bringing something from nothing. Yeah. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I reckon the chicken did. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Here's what we know. The things you see were not made out of stuff that was already there. We know that. That's what this verse is saying. And so uh, we call that creation ex nihilo. Out of nothing. The universe came into existence by divine fiat, by God's command. Um, does faith answer all the questions that you could ask in reference to? That maybe not doesn't answer all the questions. Uh, there's always going to be some debate. There's going to be some debate how to understand Genesis chapter one. There's going to be debate about that, and the Bible doesn't give us all the details. But one thing that we conclude as you study the Word of God, and ultimately whatever wherever you land on uh, days of creation wherever you land on ancient Near Eastern literary devices with uh, ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, wherever you land in all that discussion, at the end of the day, um, it's clear that God created it. It's clear God created it. How long did it take? How long ago was it? I went there. We can fight about that but there's absolutely no uncertainty about who made it and who created it. And so the writer of Hebrews says the worlds were framed, the worlds were framed, katartizo, perfected, oftentimes translated by the word of God. 
All right, so his fingerprints are everywhere. You look at creation, you, you, you learn about God and God being the creator of all things. All right, that's verse three. Any other thoughts on verse three? So we believe that by faith. It's not a blind faith. It's not a irrational faith. And then verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. All right, so here we go. This is the first character that comes out onto the stage of faith that begin a whole steady train of other men and women of faith that follow. So Abel, what do we know about Abel? Well, we know that he was the first man of faith. What else do we know about Abel? Yeah. Let's go over to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verse 1. Let's learn a little bit about Abel. Four one through seven. Sherry, do you have it? I see you turning. Yeah, okay, thanks. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, <clears throat> and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, "I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord." Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they... Oh, that's probably, that's, that's enough okay, right there. So yeah, that gets us where we want to go. All right, so look, we, it's a familiar story. Two boys, they bring an offering to God. One's accepted. One is rejected. Why? Well, we're told that Abel's sacrifice was, and the translation is uh, from Hebrews 1.4, um, or 11.4 is more excellent. It's a Greek term, pleon. It has to do with uh, just uh, greater or more important sacrifice. Um, but what made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? What have you heard? Was the firstborn had the best? <clears throat> firstborn? Best? Was it firstborn? Yeah, the firstborn. And the fat portion, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he offered the best of what he had, whereas um, Cain did not. Okay. And it also was, seemed to be prescribed what God did in the garden for sin. Yeah. So yeah, this is good. Following what God designed to be the more excellent Okay. I think that I think that uh, that's an excellent point. Why would uh, why? What's the context of Hebrews chapter 11 um, 
Think about the context of Hebrews 11 and what would make Cain or Abel's sacrifice greater. Um, yes, Abel offered it in faith. I would say that in light of the context of Hebrews 11, yeah, uh, Abel, look, Abel just offered the sacrifice in faith. And that's really the thrust of the entirety of Hebrews chapter 11. If you're going to interpret this, I think within the context of Hebrews 11, that, that really needs to be the first jumping off point. Abel offered his sacrifice uh, by faith. Uh, so, so I think the thing that separates these two boys is just that. It's one had faith, one did not. Um, we, we can get into the value of blood sacrifice going back to the garden. I think that's a discussion that we can have and, and we will. But I... I don't think that's the controlling aspect of what made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's. I think he offered his in faith. Cain uh, did not. That's that's the but, thing that distinguishes the boys. Faith has to come out of obedience. So it's not just, well, an arbitrary thing. He had faith. One had faith and the other didn't. There is still a foundation and a grounding for There's that. a reason. There's, There's a reason why there was faith here and not faith here. Yeah. And what was the what was his faith? It was the fact that this sacrifice would cover his sins. Well, I don't think Cain cared about his sins. Cain's, Cain's offering was of the labor of his own hands by the sweat of his own brow. Yeah, the, uh, the thing, yeah, I would certainly wouldn't want to communicate anything other than the fact that to do something by faith, of course, is to do it according to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And so it's not arbitrary. It's not through his father. Right. So Cain's offering was offered by, or uh, Abel's offering offered by faith in accordance with the command of God out of a heart of love for God and obedience to God. That absolutely is foundational. Um, and so, and so we have, so we have to conclude, I think that we have to conclude that there mu- that he must have believed something that God had revealed to him that we're not explicitly told about, all right? So, um, And you don't think he would have known what that meant by what God did with his parents? Yeah, he might have, but we're just not, we're not explicitly told, are we? But I do think that you can, I think you can make, Well, look, Genesis 4.3, all right? So in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the first of the ground to the Lord. Uh, this, this phrase, in the process of time, it came to pass. Literally, at the end of days. And so, and so what I'm submitting is at the end of a prescribed time. So I'm just saying that God must have... God must have revealed a special day um, to sacrifice what they sacrificed. God was God was revealing a special day, um, and it, and that is indicated by the fact that they both came at the same time, and they both um, had information regarding the sacrifice. 
right? So at the end of days, God, God had, so God told them. Um, and they were there to do that. So, uh, as, we, as we believe that all of Revelation is to do with Jesus Christ, now I think we can have this discussion about the garden, all right? So if you're still in Genesis, you can go back to chapter 3, verse 15. That's the proto-evangelium, right? Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head uh, and you will bruise his heel. And then in Genesis 3.21, God brought in death. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now we're getting there. All right, that's that is kind of the point that you were making earlier. This is absolutely, I think, foundational. Abel's sacrifice. Um, the animals were sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve's sin. Right, God made a covering. Um, and yes, so I agree. I agree with the statement that Adam and Eve certainly must have taught their children that death was the result of sin, and by faith in God's provision, Abel, Abel offered. This sacrifice, it was a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and I think that that all has connection back into Genesis uh, chapter 3 in the garden. So do you think there is no distinction when it says in verse 3 that... In what Cain, verse? In 4.3, it says that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground, but then in 4, it tells you what kind of offering Abel brought, that it was the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, that there is a distinction being made between Cain just bringing fruit and Abel bringing... I'm not trying to say that what you're saying isn't also part of this, but I think there's also distinction in four with him, with it being made clear that the type that Abel brought was the best parts of his flock. It wasn't just arbitrary. It wasn't he just grabbed some random sheep. It was the best parts. Yeah, I would think I agree with that because it was supposed to represent Christ. I, I don't know that Abel would know that, but I think God would have somehow shown him to bring the best to the flock. Well, yeah, okay, so I, I'm willing to concede that it was very likely that it was faith in God's appointed means that made the difference, right? The means through which um, the good news was going to come, redemption was going to come, atonement was going to be made. The sun is very low in the sky. There's not a lot of information, right? They, they wouldn't put, I mean, a, seeing in a glass dimly, to say the least. But there's also like a heart, right? A heart difference between someone just arbitrarily giving, oh, here's just, you know, whatever my crop, versus someone giving the best parts. There is a heart difference there. Yeah, and so it, it, as that would be the case, it's quite possible that it was not merit in the animal above the fruit of the ground. It was I mean, really I'm not about the heart. Really saying that that's the case or not. I just think it's it's interesting that the distinction is made in four versus three yeah. on what type of sacrifice it was. I think there's something something there. I don't think it's just being stated for no reason. And it seems like Abel's character, he would bring the best. Right. So can I think. I, can I just play the devil's advocate a little bit? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, <it'll> be, <laughs> that's all right. Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice. 
They both knew they were supposed to bring a sacrifice. Cain's problem was not the sacrifice as much as it was his response to not having his sacrifice received. Is that not so? Well, I, heart's yeah, that, if, with it, which goes back to April's point. It, it really, I mean, I do think the issue is the heart here and what you're believing and how, how you're responding to God in reference to the heart attitude and, and faith, which is really what this whole thing is about. It's why the author of Hebrews is grabbing hold of this example, distinguishing Abel's sacrifice above Cain's based upon faith, believing the promise of God, which can then lead us to go back to Genesis 3 and God's promise as it relates to redemption and atonement and all of that. But we're having to put this puzzle together a little bit. We're not given all the, all the information. But, but all of this, to me, seems reasonable uh, to think about it. But foundationally, it's about faith. It's about the heart, believing God and what God has, has revealed. The sacrifice is implying an acknowledgement that, see, Abel's sacrifice, going back to the garden, is it seems to be acknowledging that a person deserves death, blood must be shed, and the belief that the death of an innocent substitute would be the death that's accepted by God for forgiveness and deliverance from judgment. I don't know what Abel would have understood about all of that, but that gets back to Genesis 3.15. And, uh, and it's reasonable to me to make these connections in what regards Abel's sacrifice above Cain's. No? Okay. Sorry. No, that's okay. Look, I'm, so here's, here's what I'm suggesting to you. Abel understood, albeit imperfectly and through the glass dimly for sure, but he, it seems that he understood one of the greatest truths a man can know. Yeah, yeah, right. How can a sinful man approach God? Shedding of blood. Shedding of blood. He knew, shedding of blood, uh, and he knew that it had to be by faith. Versus Cain's was the labor of his own hands. Ah, now, now we're preaching. <laughs> yeah, Lab, labor of his own hands. So, hey, there's a lot of people who think they can approach God the way Cain did, bringing the labor of their own hands. Uh, we would call that their works. You know, they're coming. They're coming with their own, with their own works. Um, Abel is bringing a sacrifice. That helps us, doesn't it? I think that gets us down the road to understand what's happening here with Abel. And so, again, back in Hebrews 11, verse 4, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Um, grammatically, it's very possible that the antecedent of through which is not the sacrifice, but faith. Through which. <laughs> through which, through what? Through the sacrifice. He obtained the testimony he was righteous? I actually think it's through faith. Faith is the antecedent. It's through his faith that he was righteous. 
and his faith was manifest in his obedience in bringing the sacrifice. He was righteous. What does that mean? Is that imputed righteousness to Abel's account, or is this some other kind of righteousness? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I think it's imputed. It, it 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 might refer to his personal righteousness, but it does seem to me that it, in light of Hebrews ten thirty eight, it's most likely referring to his position before God and imputation. Um, so, boy, what a great place to start this chapter, right? Abel, an illustration that points to the beginning of the Christian life. This is, it all begins by faith, and Abel is the first, um, and he obtains this testimony. Um, and then the writer says, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You love that? I mean, we're talking about this a long time ago. How relevant can Abel really be to us? It seems like the writer of Hebrews is saying he continues to speak. He continues to speak. It seems that his life is a memorial to the supreme reality that God is approached only by faith. God is approached only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, what, Abel, what Abel speaks to us about is the reality that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Abel is speaking to that truth. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Abel is speaking to that truth. Though he were dead, yet he is still speaking. Any other thought on verse 4? we got Enoch next. Yeah, that God commended him by accepting his gift. I mean, regardless of whatever else we say about the account in Genesis 4, if the back part of Genesis 4, 4, end of 5 doesn't read, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, we wouldn't, if we didn't have that explicit, there's a regarding, there's a testimony of God, he commends it by the accepting of the offering. We're just left to read into the ground, the mm. everything else, but that's what's at, at hand is God being pleased. I think that's what Tony was saying. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, commended by the accepting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was. Yeah, excellent. Okay, then verse five. Who's got it? Go ahead. Amber, you haven't read tonight. You want to read? Oh, you have? I'm going, yeah. April hasn't read. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Isn't this interesting? This is one of the more interesting passages in the Old Testament, in my opinion. Um, The idea of taken up, that's actually not in the text. There's no directional aspect to the word that's being translated. That's in English. uh, They're trying to help us understand here, but there's no concept of up. The idea is just taken. Just taken. Removed. He he was walking with God, and then he was removed. So So as not to die is the whole point. 
Um, and I only make that point because this is not some, you'd, you've heard preachers preach this passage and talk about some pre-rapture, rapture passage in the Old Testament. They're, they're going to get us to the rapture theology through Enoch being raptured up somehow. Um, There's less said of Enoch in this in the passage of him in Genesis. Yeah. Than of Cain and Abel. I'm just... Yeah, no, there is. I mean, there's not. We're not told Enoch brought a sacrifice. We're not told anything about so uh, Enoch bringing blood sacrifice or doing any other kind of sacrifice. We're not told much anything at all. What does Genesis say about him? Yeah, well, let's go. Genesis five eighteen. Thank you for asking. Genesis five eighteen. Teacher's pet. Uh, 18 through 24. April, you didn't read very much. You're looking at your text. Oh yeah, you got it. 18 through 24. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's the key part right there, walked with God. Isn't it? Yeah. Genesis says Enoch walked with God. And the Hebrews passage says that Enoch, Enoch, um, what? Uh, pleased God. Yeah, pleased God. He pleased God. So, evidently, walking with God <laughs> is living in fellowship with God, and walking with God is pleasing God. So these are these are, I think, synonymous uh, concepts. Um, yeah, the Septuagint reads pleased God in Genesis. Uh, okay, is what I have a note in. So it's not. Does that have anything to do with the previous passage of him having fathered Methuselah for 300 years? Like, could you assume that that was, he, he was faithfully fathering him for 300 years? <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time. That's a long time. <laughs> you all have it so easy. Yeah. My daughter just turned 17. I just have more to go. Um, 300 years. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah, so verse 22, after he begat uh, Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Um, and so... Yeah, so we got so not you only have this one. There's one other example. Elijah. Yeah, Elijah. Maybe God knew another 300 years and he would turn sour. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. We're gonna. I know what you're gonna do. So we're not gonna do. Um. Look, uh, Methuselah's name means when he dies, judgment. 
Yes, that's right. And so that's, it's uh, kind of uh, an astonishing thing when you realize that when Methuselah died, that's when the, th- that's when the, thug, uh, the flood came. And, um, and it's quite possible that that revelation was also something that Enoch knew. Enoch was aware of a coming judgment. Um, and, that, and that reality of knowing God, loving God, being aware of God's coming judgment, His holiness, walking in obedience to God, walking in fellowship with God, walking um, by faith uh, is, is all going on here. Um, and, uh, and God took him. Which, you know, so it's... So pleasing God, walking with God, walking by the Spirit, it's a Spirit-controlled life. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a flesh-controlled life. Enoch walked in fellowship with God. His life pleased God, and God removed him from the earth without him dying. I mean, that's the bottom line of what is going on. Um, And God testified that he was pleased with him before he took him up. Yeah. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. It was understood. There was like an account or record or understanding amongst the people. Good point. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Prior to. It was known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, look, we're not told anything about Enoch in terms of what kind of father he was, what kind of husband he was, what kind of worker was. Was he a faithful man? How did he interact with people? I mean, we just, we don't know anything about this guy. Uh, But we really don't need to know anything more about him, do we? We don't need to have really uh, a detailed description of, of his life or the ins and outs or particulars. It just says he pleased God and that says it all. And, and what a testimony, what a testimony, this man, he is pleased. He pleased God. How did he please God? Well, here's how he didn't please God. He didn't please God by his works. How did he please God? By By faith. And that's the whole point of why the writer of Hebrews is using Enoch. Well, he he lived a pretty long time. So he, he, by faith, day in and day out, consistently walked, pleasing to God. That's right. I think of Psalm, Psalm 1, you know, blessed, blessed is the man who walks with God, doesn't walk in the counsel of the unknown yeah. and so forth, but he's walking with God. That kind of and think about this. I mean, how much would he have known about Yahweh? How much, I mean, we have... A Bible. We live on this side of the cross. We we understand that we know a lot more about God than Enoch did, or really any Old Testament saint did. But those guys were living so long. He might have known Adam. He probably heard him right from the horse's mouth. There you go. Yes. Now, does that are you saying that to contradict what I just said, April? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> no, but look, I, yeah, yeah, we're getting it lively. I'm just making the point that living this side of the cross, in light of the fact that we have the Word of God, the full revelation of God, wisdom and understanding, sola scriptura, 
we know far more than any Old Testament saint knew about God. And I'm just saying that because we don't get it out. Uh, in fact, we're, we're held more responsible. And yet, ultimately, it's still by God's grace that we're granted faith regardless of what we know. Always. Which brings us to verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So the idea is without faith, it is impossible to please him at all. You cannot please God in any way. Absent faith. The statement is universal and timeless. And so Enoch is illustrating the general principle. It's now unfolded. Faith is truthful. Uh, it, faith is trustful reliance on the sovereign word of God and a confident recognition of complete trustworthiness in his promises. That's faith. So to abandon faith, well, that's living your life in a way that is saying, I don't, I don't believe that there is a God. I don't believe that God exists. I don't believe that God is there. And so, verse 6, for he who comes to God must what? First of all, first step out of the block. If you're going to come to God, you must believe that he is. That he is. You must believe that he is. <clears throat> so can you offer, can you give an offering to God apart from faith? We just talked about the answer, but it seems like a contradiction, right? Even though we know it isn't. Cain offered, explicitly he offered, made a sacrifice, offered to God, yet it wasn't by a faith that pleased him. Um, it was absent of faith. But I'm saying in light of, I don't know how to make that point any different than that. Um, okay. You could offer something, sense? but it may or may not be accepted by God in based on faith. Is that what you're getting at? It's not the thing. I'm saying, you're making an, I'm saying that the, the text says that he was making an, an offering to God. But it, but it ultimately doesn't matter about the human perspective of making the offering. It's whether or not it's accepted. It's going back to the point that you had made before, right? That it's ultimately if God chooses to accept or reject that offering on the basis of faith. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. Going from man to God versus going from God to man. Is that what you're getting at here or no? You're like, no. I don't know. I kind of threw it out there with the hope that the, that it would bring more understanding, and it seems to have the opposite effect. I'm, just, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to jump in, but I don't know exactly where to do it. Or how yeah, to do it. I just misplaced a uh, word there. Yeah, so the verse says, without faith it's impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists. Well, if I'm giving an offering to him, I believe he exists, is my point. Cain made an offering to God. That but there's was not an and accepted. here. Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Right. Matt yes. could argue, well, Kane so is... There's, so there's, there's the punch I was hoping there. when I threw it out there. <laughs> that's, that's the punch <laughs> that brings it full circle. And that he rewards those who seek him. Which means that, that must have been the part. That Cain wasn't of, seeking him. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. There now, it is. now we got there finally. Appreciate it. And it's and by seeking, we mean pleasing him, walking in obedience to him, offering a sacrifice that was pleasing to him. Um, are all those synonymous concepts to seeking him? Yes, okay. Oh, yes. Uh, we didn't yes. realize that was a question. <laughs> yes. Okay. We didn't. Gotta be more. Gotta phrase it as a question, yeah. <laughs> not a statement. By the way, uh, it's, not, it's not just a belief that, that a God exists, but it's the belief that the God of the Bible exists. Amen. Right? And that's, that, that is an important distinction. It's a belief that, that, the, that the God who exists is the God who is holy, just, loving, merciful, sovereign. It's the God of the Bible. It's the belief that God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the belief that um, that he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He never changes. We can trust what he says. He is who he is. He is who he has revealed himself to be. So it's not just believing a God exists, but believing that the God of the Bible exists. Well, and wrapped up in this is the theology, peace, and the ethics, right? Believing that he exists, the God of the Bible exists, and that he rewards those who seek him, that there is the obedience of seeking, the ethics of seeking, and the theology of believing, that those things are going hand in hand. Yeah, that's the emphasis, right? So the the whole epistle, really, there's a great deal in, in Hebrews that 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 teaches us things about reward, right? There's a lot of reward passages in Hebrews. And so the reason um, that we walk in obedience, living this kind of life of faith, radical risk-taking, denying ourselves, uh, regarding the treasures of Egypt as being worthless in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, choosing to sufferings of Christ as greater treasures than all the treasures of Egypt. The reason for all of that is that God is the rewarder. We're going to get into more specifically what that reward looks like when you get into chapter 12. But it's a beautiful reward. It's worth it. That's what he's saying. Keep pressing on. Go ahead. And you have, you know, what, what April was chiming on earlier, it doesn't matter about the sacrifice from the human perspective, right? Or, but it matters about God's perspective. So we are to be living sacrifices, living faithfully in everything that we do, and not just obedient and faithful and sacrificial in the things that seem big and important to us, but we are to be you know, worshipful and faithful in the way that we brush our teeth in the morning, in the way that we speak to our siblings, in the way that we do all of these little things every single day to be consistent humble, sacrificial, and faithful. And when you're faithful with the little things, then you can be faithful with the things that, you know, God gives you that are seemingly to us bigger or more important. But there's like, where, where does the rubber hit the road here for us? It's being faithful in the little things. We are to be sacrifices to God. Seeking, I mean, yes, seeking God. All, all of that 
under the under the umbrella of seeking him. Right? That's we live our lives. You're here tonight because you you want to live in a way that is seeking God. You want to seek him. You want to seek him through uh, his word and the fellowship of his people and and that's the that's the whole point, being faithful in our life, being faithful in the littlest things in, in life. But it's the whole purpose of seeking God and then and then he puts before you the reality that in that life uh, it'll be suffering, you're gonna be rejected, you're going to sacrifice, you, you're gonna have to sacrifice comforts, securities, all the things that the world values, you're gonna have to regard Christ as greater than all those things, and he rewards you. The, the picture is on a holistic salvation. There is, uh, we were talking about this at lunch today, you're going to judge the angels. You're going to be exalted to the throne with Christ. You're going to rule and reign for all eternity. You're going to be seated on thrones, ruling and reigning. Um, he, God knows how to reward his people who are living for him, diligently seeking him. I want to close tonight by with a story out of the Old Testament. So go over to go over to Second uh, Chronicles chapter twenty, because I think this passage is really an illustration. Um, what's that? Second Chronicles twenty. Um, and what I'm going to suggest to you is that this story is, in fact, a beautiful illustration of what it is to walk by faith. And I think in that sense, it shows us how the Christian life should be lived. And uh, we're going to read several verses here. Um, We can chop it up. How about April, you start us off and you stop when you get tired. We're going to read 26 verses. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Okay, so um, just Mark verse 3. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to what? Seek the Lord, right? That's why we're reading this. Hebrews tells us that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And that's what Jehoshaphat's doing. He's proclaiming a fast throughout all Judah. Judah gathers together to do what? Well, to ask help from the Lord. Use another phrase. To seek the Lord. They're seeking the Lord together. And and you see that in verse 4. They came to seek the Lord. All right, so go ahead. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. 
And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay, so verse 12, mark it. That's getting us, helping us. It's getting us down the road of what this life lived by faith, seeking the Lord, looks like. Go ahead. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord, Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Je- Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. All right. Verse 17 is one of the... You've got to try to use some sanctified imagination. Put yourself in their sandals. This is going to be uh, it's going to be an unbelievable battle, but they're not going to have to fight it. Strangest sort of battle. You're going to go out. You're going to position yourself. What's our strategy, Lord? Give us a good military strategy to ensure outcome. All right, here it is. Stand still. Don't do anything. The salvation of the Lord, who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear, be dismayed. Wow. Tomorrow, go out against them. The Lord is with you. That is a strange sort of battle plan. Go ahead. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Okay. So, verse 20, there, there's, a, there's a good definition of what the life lived by faith looks like. This is what God calls us to. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will prosper. Sounds very much like New Covenant terminology, right? It's the same thing. This is what it it is to to seek God. This is what it is to live by faith. It's what it looks like. Verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were rooted. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Continue. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness... 
they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were there three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. I, I'm, we're reading this because I really do think this is an Old Testament illustration of what the Christian life is all about. What, what, what were they doing? They were seeking the Lord. God gave them command, gave them direction. They were obedient to him. They trusted him. And God knows how to reward his people. Psalm 9.10 And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Without, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so we need to trust him. We need to come to him, believing him, trusting him. And uh, like Jehoshaphat and the armies of Judith did. And God knows how to reward his people. That's it for tonight. I think we're done. What else? Anything else? Great passage. Father, thank you tonight for this wonderful portion of your word. We, we want to obey what you've shown us tonight. We want to uh, emulate the examples of those who believed you, who sought you, who trusted you, who looked to you believing your promises to be true. Father, we believe that you are the holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. And we thank you, Lord, that as we believe you, as we come to you and seek you, as we seek to live a life of faith and obedience to you, that you promise us that although in this life we may suffer, in this life we may sacrifice comforts and securities, you know how to reward your people. And so we have our eyes there. We have our eyes on the reward. And we thank you, Lord, for the promises that you give us. Father, teach us. Help us to seek you. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to be people who will believe you. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.